God said amen. amen. Do you join me in the book of Jude? In the book of Jude, that small book just before the book of Revelation. And Jude, we're going to read verses 5 through 10. The book of Jude, verses 5 through 10. Word of the Lord, Jude, beginning at verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bounds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. These men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. Word of the Lord, amen. You may be seated. The subject of evil has provided for us a rather perplexity to the human psyche in the past and certainly as we wrestle with the presence of evil in our context and arguably we shall continue to be challenged by evil's participation in the future. It's a perplexing conversation because Christianity leaves us with the information that the world was created by the hands of a perfect and loving God who cannot be deemed as the origin or perpetuator of evil. Yet when we examine the language of the philosophical giant J.L. Mackey, he says that what happens is Christians are left to wrestle with the pathology that they inherit without choice that occurs in various perpetuating degrees and it appears that it only intensifies as time moves on. Arguably, we cannot suggest that evil can be defined in a single definition. Instead, we might find some sense of encouragement from John Finberg, who is an evangelical theologian who says that we really have to look at evil in the multi-layer perspective that it is. There is religious evil. 
There is theological and philosophical evil. There is moral evil. There is natural evil. There is animal evil. And there is the problem that all of us fear and wrestle with by some in reference to what's called eternal hell. And yet we still wrestle with understanding how does the will, love, and truth of a righteous God fit within the operation of such pathology. If we scan the text, there are many authors to which we can suggest to hear this very concern screaming from their lungs, but none more than the prophet Habakkuk, who looks at his own contextual setting and notices that God is permitting evil to reign at an incredible rate. Listen to what the prophet says. He cries out from the depths of his own heart, Lord, how long must I cry for help unto you? I cry out and all I see is violence, and yet you do not move to save us from the violence that's all around us. What will it take? And why will you allow me to keep experiencing and witnessing with my own eyes so much evil, so much iniquity all around us? And why have you caused me to constantly have to view the wickedness through my eyes? Destruction and violence are always before me and strife exists and contentions arise. And let's not talk about the law, says Habakkuk. The law seems to be ignored and justice is never upheld. In fact, the wicked seems to surround the righteous and justice seems to end up being perverted at best. Habakkuk seems to suggest to us that he is trying along with what we will see in Jude to figure out why does God permit so much evil to hang around our existence and at least if that's going to be the case give us some explanation as to why you let this happen to make matters worse if I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 it appears in reading the text that evil will not let up in fact as time progresses and moves forward it's going to get worse as time moves on, listen to what the writer says. All things are wearisome. He may be arguing that no matter what you look at, you're going to always find a negative in the presence of a positive. But yet he says, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And that which has been is which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Could the author be suggesting to you and I that no matter how much evil you think you've seen, we've all seen it before. It's nothing new. And even though I'm giving you an early heads up that it may be perpetuated even more than what you see now, it still doesn't compare with what we've seen in the past. And, should I say, and what has been called redemptive suffering. There are those who believe that the, the presence of evil 
and the exercise of suffering is a must in human existence. It's a tool that God uses to mold and shape redemption out of our suffering experience, somehow declaring that what is meant for evil, it ends up being used for the good of God. Maybe that is true, and maybe that is not true. But we're still left with a dilemma in terms of the presence of evil. The Bible says that Job was a righteous and blameless man, and with such a description of a person's life, you would certainly believe that evil could not, should not, and would not have a participation in that life. But read the story of Job, and you'll know quickly that Job suffered, even being a righteous and blameless man. Went to church on Sunday, gave like nobody else could give, but he lost his children, he lost his possession, and ultimately lost his own health. He even had friends who believed that he certainly must have done something wrong because a loving, powerful, and righteous God would never punish a righteous man and a blameless man. And so they urged Job, you need to repent and make peace with God. Yet in Job's soul, he knew that not only had he not done anything wrong, but he couldn't compute in his own mind, why then is God permitting me to suffer the way that I'm suffering? And if that is not intensified enough, although God goes bountifully back to Job, what Job has lost, when you read the story of Job, God still never explains to Job how allowing those evils in his life squares with his divine love and his benevolence. We are left to wrestle with why would a righteous God <clears throat> permit the kinds of evil and suffering in the life of Job to exist? And might I even add the caveat, remember, Job did not raise his hand nor fill out a ballot for willful consideration for evil, but his own God volunteered him in confrontation with Satan, in fact, raising the question, have you considered my servant Job? Satan shows up, who is arguably the father and architect of evil, says Job, going up and down, looking for somebody or something to destroy or manipulate, and God steps out of the shadows of eternity and asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? We are left with a perplexing, mysterious issue in trying to figure out why God, in the language of Habakkuk, do you keep on letting stuff happen the way that it happens? If you are a perfect, righteous God, why not intervene at least on the side of the innocent who've done no wrong and yet you allow their lives to be turned upside down? We are left, therefore, as human beings, professional theologians, professional philosophers, Ordinary people like you and I wrestling with the idea, how does God 
allow such things to happen, but more importantly, why? Why won't he stop? Not only stop them, but intervene in keeping humanity from bearing such a heavy load on their shoulders. No doubt Jude is wrestling with, in the context of this letter, some of the same questions that you and I are wrestling with now. Looking into his own community that we would later describe as a church in a space where a life committed to the person of Jesus Christ is the driving force of what brings about that community's existence, you would think that evil could not, should not, and would not have permission to invade its ranks. And yet, we find repeatedly in the sacred texts, it is evil that causes this context to be turned upside down. It's evil, as I alluded to last week, that yet causes us, even though we do not wish to have its presence, it seems to be a strange pathology that causes us to connect with the reality of what it means to pray. We may not even open our Bibles, they may collect dust for years to come, but when evil or suffering or trouble seems to come into our ranks, we manage to wipe that dust off and try to find in those pages some sense of hope that can help us deal with a very assumed hopeless situation. Maybe God is trying to tell us in the context of Jude that as I told you before, I'm not going to remove evil because evil is a necessary tool in my hand to get you to make sure that you recognize from whom all blessings flow. And yet Jude even says in a very indirect fashion, I am just like you. I don't understand how God allows evil to do what it does. I don't have the answer or the response to philosophical questions and religious questions about evil. I'm just as perplexed on this matter as you are. I recognize that God works in mysterious ways and his wonders to perform. And to even make that worse, God doesn't always give explanation in reference to why God does what God does. However, I do know this, says Jude, that there have been times in human history, and I'm about to tell you about three, says Jude, that God gets tired of evil trying to become triumphant in every situation. And God has to confront evil and tell evil, as I've given this sermon the title, that's it, it's got to come to a close. You've gone as far as I'm going to let you go, it is now time to bring this pathology to a conclusion. Here it is in the text. Jude says in verse 5, 6, and 7 that God interrupted history in the past on three separate occasions and told evil point blank, this is it, you've gone far enough. But that's really not the message I think that Jude is trying to leave us in a contemporary context. He wants to remind his listeners, never forget that the writer had told us in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. 
and to even give to that, God is going to do what God does both in history and in the present and in the time to come if it's his desire to do so. But God also handles that which is deliberately contrary to his principles and Jude gives us three examples to let us know that God does, says, that's it, it's time to deal with the evil. When you look at verse 5, it's a story that ought to remind us that Jude really is saying God does come to a point even in the life of the righteous where he says enough is enough. When you read the story of Numbers chapter 13 and 14 and 15, in that story, Moses sends spies into Canaan to spy out the land, trying to get an idea as to what lies in Canaan before they go in and try to conquer. You remember the story that there are 12 spies that are sent into the land. When they go in this cognitive mission and try to check out what's going on, they come back to Moses and tell Moses, 10 of them, we can't do nothing with the people in that land because they are like giants to us and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. They said that to show you how fruitful and how productive the land is, they brought back cluster of grapes in which it took two men to carry back. But there were two other men, Joshua and Caleb, who says, not so. Don't believe the negative report. In fact, Joshua and Caleb says, don't always believe what your eyes see. Even though they may look like they might be giants in the land. But remember, God has given us the commission to go in and conquer the land. And if God said it, that settles it. And all we have to do is walk in the authority to which God has provided. Joshua and Caleb says, I disagree with you. I know we can conquer the land. In fact, I am so confident God can work this thing out. God has already given us victory. All we need to do is just walk into the land and let God be God. Well, the 10 seems to have the persuasive nature of causing the whole entire generation not to really believe that God has said and did what he promised. Instead, what turned out to be, or should have been, a 14-day journey from the foot of the mountain into the promised land, God allowed them to walk for 38 plus years in a wilderness, all because, read the last line of verse 5 in the book of Jude, they had unbelief. In fact, Jude argues an entire generation, and notice what he says. He makes it plain to make sure that we understand not the whole entire generation, but just two of them managed to survive the wilderness experience. He lets them walk in the wilderness for 38 years and says, Jude, he destroyed only those who would not believe. 
God gives us a period of warning. Can you imagine in those 38 years, God constantly kept warning Israel, I need you to believe me, I need you to trust me, I need you to hold my hand, I need you to yield it to me, only to have Israel make a decision that God is not who God said that he is. And look what God did. Every time they had a challenge, God made sure their challenge was well taken care of. Read the book of Exodus, and when they come across the Red Sea in Exodus 14, they get to Exodus 15 and start shouting and singing Miriam's song. But when they get into the wilderness, they start complaining, we have no water and we have no bread. They go to Moses and voice their complaint and Moses goes back to God and God says, no problem, cool in the gang, watch this. He drops quail from the heavens to make sure they have plenty of food in terms of eating. And he says, to show you how good I am, every day you go out and gather everything that you need. Don't leave nothing for the next day, but gather everything up. That's to show them, I'm the God who can meet your need every single day, and you don't have to save up hoping that I'll come through on tomorrow. Then he says, on Saturday, I want you to gather up a whole lot because on Sunday, I want you to remember that's your day of worship and celebration. He says, I want you to remember that even in the process of me warning you, come on to church and make sure you give me the glory and give me the honor and I'll make sure when you get back home, everything that you need in your cupboard will be there because I'm the God who will supply all of your needs. And if that's not enough, they said, we don't have any water. They came upon some water, but it was bittersweet water. And God says, cool again, no problem. Let me show you how I operate. Moses, throw that stick into the water and watch how God turns the bitterness into sweetness. And what happens? They looked and saw when Moses threw the stick into the water, it gushed up into everlasting spring water, reminding us that God has a spring that flows from glory, and whenever your cup is empty, you ain't got to complain about it, just go to from whom all blessings flow. He did everything he could to make sure they understood that I am the God who's got your back. When the enemies rose up against him, the Amalekites, and wanted to destroy them, what did God do? Just take Moses up on top of the mountain and Aaron and Joshua. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold Moses' arms high up in the air as a symbolic gesture of praise. And I know it looked like I might not win the battle, but when praise is go up the blessings of God come down and something's going to happen and to show you how I want you to keep your arms up in praise every time Moses arms drop down Israel got defeated in battle but every time God allowed those arms to go up Israel was victorious in battle trying to tell us as long as you keep on praising God and celebrating God and worshiping God and honoring God no matter what the battle
battle is, sometimes you might have to praise your way through the battle. I know you don't understand what that means, but that means you have to just look at your evil context and say the devil is like, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. You got to praise yourself through some stuff sometimes. And when you start praising, evil can't figure out how come you haven't become depressed? How come you haven't become overcome? That's because the joy that I have, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. And it's the God of my salvation that won't let me allow anything or anyone to blanket my praise. And so he gave them a period of warning. But then notice the text says something interesting. He not only gave them a period of warning, but he gave them a period of waiting. 38 years, God says, I'm waiting for you to get your stuff together. There is in that episode a depiction of how gracious God is. God's been waiting for some of us for a long time to just flat out trust that God will do what God said he will do and thank goodness he keeps waiting, he keeps waiting but there will come a moment when God might say that's it. He gives us a period of warning and he gives us a period of waiting but he also gives us a period of wrath and for 38 years it came to a head when they were about to go into Canaan and God instructed Moses to lead the Israelites and the Israelites reverted back to their old condition of complaining that God wouldn't supply their need. And God tells Moses, that's it. They are going to die right where they are. All because they refuse to change and to trust. If I haven't shown them enough, listen. Remember, listen to what Jude says. Remember, God delivered them from Egypt. So if you go back to that story in Exodus, when they came out of Egypt not knowing how they were going to get out in terms of being victorious, because what lied before them was a reed sea that was impassable. And what did God do? He stretched down in his breath and blew the waters to each side and then allowed his hands to hold the water that they could cross over, says the book of Deuteronomy, on dry ground. So much so that Moses says, don't you remember how God dried the ground so that your soles of your shoes, and if that's not enough, they walked in the wilderness, and the book of Deuteronomy says, for those 38 years, and to show you how good grace was, not even the soles on their shoes wore out. And God said to Moses, tell them that's it. I'm done dealing with them. They will die right where they are, and an entire generation except two died right where they are. It's a warning to us that God will give you a warning when he's trying to tell you your unbelief is what's killing your victory. 
when he's trying to tell us that your unbelief is killing your victory but in the meantime since I know you're a slow learner I'm trying to help you out I'm giving you time and in giving you time I'm giving you a warning but sometimes we never catch the warning not even in the time and so the wrath of God comes down on and they died except Joshua and Caleb. Now there's a twist in the story. And the twist is, isn't it amazing? Only Joshua and Caleb survived, but an entire new generation went into Canaan. Now where did that generation come from? No doubt it probably was, watch this, hear me clearly, it was the children of those who refused to make a change. <laughs> it was the children. And God says, okay, if you don't want me to use you, I'll just take them children and use them and they will go in and possess what was rightfully given to you. But they didn't want change. They didn't want to trust God. They wanted to hold on to their unbelief and as a result, says Jude, they died with it. And if that's not convincing, look at verse 6. Jude said, just so you won't know, so you will know that God not only deals with folk, but God deals with angelic beings as well. And so he runs in verse 6 and begins to talk about the angels in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, who probably had some level of cohabitating with the, with the uh, humans in Genesis chapter 6, and as a result, creating some interesting group of people that we would later call giants. We don't get to see who giants are until after Genesis 6. And it appears that the interaction of those angelic beings and those human beings created this astronomically creature called a giant. And yet it might be symbolically a gesture to remind us that when you are unequally yoked, you might bring forth a problem in due season. Look closely at the text. It says that there were angels who had an assignment that they refused to carry it out. By refusal, he means that they turned their assignment in following God and took their assignment in following Satan. So he reverts to Isaiah chapter 14 to remind us of how Satan gets expelled from the heavens and he brings angels along with them and God says as a result, here's my wrath, they too are chained into eternal damnation until the judgment. Now that's a little deep for us, but let me see if I can simplify that. Here's what he's saying. Even though the evil one brings with him imps to exercise and to carry out his agenda in terms of instituting and instigating evil, wickedness in high places. God says, I deal with that as well. So much so that they came to a point in the book of Jude where there was a disbelief by the false teachers that angels even existed. In fact, they were contending that God did not bring about angels, but their sub-created beast was not in the hand of God. And yet, God reminds us in the text that he is not only the creator of angels, 
but he uses angels for his glory. How do I know that? Well, you got to pick up the book of Acts and get to the book of Acts chapter 12, and there Herod begins to persecute the church and actually kills the first apostle, which is James, and puts Peter in prison. And in putting Peter in prison, prison is, is, is a place where you don't want to be, but Peter, for some unusual reason, is chilling in prison. And the Bible says an angel showed up and tapped him on his shoulder and told him, get up from where you are. God has miraculously made a way for you to get out of here. Now read the story and it says that Peter sort of freaked out trying to think that this was a dream in the way in the world that an angel would come through and help him in his time of need. Follow me now, follow me. In his time of need, there's no way where an angel come through and the angel says, no, I'm here. In fact, put on your cloak and follow me everywhere that I go. And Peter knew that there was a God sitting right there at the gate and there's no way you're going to get past the God. And the angel said, watch this, you forgot who I'm serving and who sent me on my mission. And they walked right by the God who was in a deep sleep. And when Peter got to his house, the Bible says he awoke out of his sleep because sometimes God has to put you under a deep sleep so you will follow instructions because in your rational mind, you will sit there and try to figure out this can't be God so he let him out and when he got to the house the Bible says he's knocking on the door and Rhoda comes to the door and Rhoda says who is it and he says it's me Peter and Rhoda said there they go again trying to play games on me and Peter says no it's me baby I know you can't believe it I can't even believe it I'm the one that's here but it's me my point is that God is trying to tell us that if anybody tries to tell you that God doesn't have angels, all you got to do is just look back over your life and watch how God dispatched an angel that guided you through some situations and that gave some protection all around you. What could have been was not because God sent an angel. And have you ever been in one of the moments well, you can all, you can just almost verbally hearing someone tell you, uh-uh, get up and go over there and don't stay where you are. It's as if someone is speaking right there in your ear. And it's an angel. It's an angel. And Jude is saying to us in the text that no matter what the false teacher tells you, God uses angels because they're on his divine assignment. Now, he makes an allusion to a story that's not in the Bible, and I, I don't have time to break that down for you right now because I know if I start telling you about it, you're going to freak out in your mind. But look at verse 9. He starts talking about how Michael wrestled with the devil over the body of Moses, which seems to suggest to us a whole other conversation about, wait a minute, I thought Moses was heaven-bound. What in the world is the devil doing wrestling with the body of Moses? But yet God dispatches Michael to fight for Moses' body. Which says to me also, maybe God also sends angels to fight my battles, which is the reason why sometimes I know I don't have to fight because God has already fought the battle for me. And then if that ain't bad enough, 
Beatitude says in verse 7, let me throw another story at you to remember. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 19. If it wasn't for Abraham and Lot, they would have experienced the wrath of God much earlier. But God gave them a warning by telling Abraham to tell the city, this wicked city whose primary function seems to be to specialize in promiscuity and immorality, if they don't get themselves together, I will destroy them. In fact, he tells Lot, when God gets to a point where his wrath has surpassed the time of warning, he says to Lot, get your family and get out of the city because tomorrow Sodom and Gomorrah will be no more. The idea of the story is when he tells Lot, get your family, move them out, keep moving, and don't look back. Now, when you read the story, it actually doesn't say don't look back. The story just simply says, move forward. Because God knows that he probably lacks the faith of moving forward because he's going where he doesn't know where he's going. So Lot says, Abraham, would you ask God, would he give me such and such city that has a mountainous view that I can stand there and look back at Sodom but most importantly, when the wrath of God occurs, I know I'll be far away from Sodom and it won't bother me. But the key to the story is, whenever God delivers you from a context to which you've been praying about, or when God leads you out of something that he's about to bring a judgment upon, whatever you do, don't look back. Because there's nothing back there for you to look back for but the ashes and the rubbles. Now, how do I know that? Well, you know the story of Genesis 19. When they got out of the town, for whatever reason, we're not told. But Mrs. Lot makes a decision to look back. I don't know if there's some homeboy she forgot. I don't know if she left something back there. I don't know if there's somebody she might miss. I don't know if there was a moment to which she was reflecting. I don't know what the issue was. But the Bible says when she looked back, she turned into a pillar of salt. Maybe God is trying to remind us, I delivered you for a purpose. Not to look backwards, but to look forward. And when I do so, don't spend your time trying to figure out what am I leaving behind? If whatever you, listen, the disciples said to Jesus on one occasion, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, let me, let me just come a little closer. Just come a little, let me, let me tell you something. Whatever you think you've lost, I will give it back to you 100 times more. And the disciples said, well, you talking about, I mean, you talking like that, Lord. We, let's just move on forward then. That's because God is saying, you got a pass for a reason. And the pass is, every time something in the present begins to irritate, don't go back to it. 
if you do look back, remember that's where you don't want to go back to. Instead, what you want to do is use it as a moment to encourage me. That's not where I want to go and that's not where I'm going. Straight ahead is where I'm going. And when you move ahead for the kingdom of God, God will bring about. In fact, God so warned and God so gave them enough time that he said, that's it, enough. When they came out, read the last line of verse 7, eternal judgment reigned upon them where it eliminated Sodom and Gomorrah, which no more exists. So Jude is a preacher who's trying to warn us as well, there's a good thing about serving God when you do right, but there's also some bad stuff when you do wrong. And if you ain't careful, you'll find yourself in a very compromising position. And so Jude identifies three types of sins, and then I'm done, about these false teachers. One, he says they got polluted dreams. Look at verse 8, clause 8. They got polluted dreams. Their mindset in terms of serving was not for the glory of God but for self-gratification. I may be the statement this morning and I'll say it again. Listen, whenever you get to a point where you think that you're, you're serving in ministry and it's not for God's glory but it's only for your own selfish gain, get out of it. Go ahead on and pack up your bags and just leave it because in the long run, you're not only going to destroy yourself and the ministry, but you're going to find yourself disconnected from God with a motive that doesn't glorify God. They had polluted dreams. Not only polluted dreams, but look at clause B. They hated, they reviled, they rejected authority. They just didn't follow leadership. And i got to tell you something about that. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam had the same problem with Moses. He decided she wanted to challenge Moses. In fact, the Bible says that they rose up against Moses. And God told Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, here's what I want y'all to do. C come on down and meet me outside the tent. I don't want to do this in the church. I'm going to do this outside the church because if I do it in the church, everybody in there might be destroyed. So come on outside the church. When God gets them outside, he says to Miriam, look at here. Normally what I do is I give the prophet visions. But to Moses, I'm talking mouth to mouth. And as a result of that, you don't have anything to say about what I give to Moses. Just follow the instruction. Read it for yourself in Numbers chapter 12. Don't believe me, just read it for yourself. And as a result, Miriam got a little irritated. And God says, look, just to show you that I mean what I'm telling you, follow my leadership that I've placed before you. The Bible says when God left their presence and went back to glory... Aaron looked over and noticed that Miriam was struck with leprosy. I told you a couple of Sundays before, when you fight against me, you ain't actually fighting against me. You're fighting against the God who appointed me. I'm not the one going to suffer for it. You are. The best thing to do is let God, if you think I'm wrong, let God handle me because he's going to do the right thing. But if you and I try to handle that situation, you know we're going to do it for our own preference and we're going to mess up. And the equivalency to handling, uh, to become possessed by a leprosy is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. That some of y'all are jacked up at the communion table because when you come, rather than to come sober to participate in the Lord's broken body, you come already drunk trying to encourage others to get drunk. 
And as a result, some of you are not only sick, but some of you sleep. You know what that means? Some of you, from the wrath of God, has allowed sickness to invade your body. And there are others where God says, I went on and put you to sleep. Now read 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5 where Paul identifies a very promiscuous relationship between a stepson and his stepmother, a sexual relationship, and the church does nothing about it. And yet Paul says, and, and, and I, I think I better turn, I better turn here, but X-Men, let them hear it for themselves because they're going to think I'm telling a lie. Paul says, I am going to pray for you and pray that God will, lead, will let you go over to Satan so your soul can be saved. Here it is, here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. I have decided to deliver one as such to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. That ain't me, that's, that's Bible. That's God saying, I'm going to let Satan destroy you. Go back to Romans chapter 1. God says, if you want to keep on fighting my warnings and I'm keeping on giving you time in terms of waiting, that's fine. I will turn you over to your reprobate mind. I will let you go after your own vile affection. Now, if I really wanted to dig deep into Genesis 19 and show you how they really were destroyed, they were destroyed for sexual immorality. I know I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave y'all alone because I know it's going to shake y'all if I start talking about that. But, but they, they got into some stuff that was outside the will of God. When you read the story, when the two angels came in town to entertain Lot, remember there were those who were at the door wanting to have sex with angels who were in the form, this is what we call the theophany, in the form of a man. And yet they said, we wanted to have relation with the man. And Lot says, don't do that. Here's a part of the story we don't never talk about. How can Lot volunteer his daughters to have sex with somebody they don't even know? And God rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And God will do the same with us when we fail to follow through. In being obedient unto God. He's warning us. He's giving us a time to wait. But the wrath of God will come at some point in time where God says, that's enough. That's it. And the text says to us that Jude makes it clear that God had said enough was enough. And if that weren't enough, I'm done here. They not only had polluted dreams and rejected authority, but they denied angelic intervention. Remember, I gave you the story in Acts chapter 12. But if that weren't enough, someone constantly in the text can remind us of how God spoke through the voice. In fact, was it not an angelic pronouncement to Mary what her assignment would be in life? Read Luke chapter 1. And the angel announces to her, you have found favor in the eyes of God. And could it not be that God sometimes brings to us an angel that pronounces not only our protection, but favor? And so God gave three types of destruction. He destroyed the generation physically. He bound the angels 
in darkness and he destroyed the city with an eternal fire. God not only gives us a period of warning, not only gives us a period of waiting and a period of wrath, but God gives us a period of weaning. And maybe these stories, says Jude, is to remind us that God is trying to wean us off of the milk and put us on some very strong meat. Better explanation of this whole entire pericope that Jude gives us is found in 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read this text and then I'm closed. I'm done. Because I'll let the text speak for itself. 2 Peter chapter 2, and listen to what Peter says. False prophets also arise among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. I talked about that this morning when I, when I said what amazes me about false prophets is that they can make promises to us and we buy into them. We see it often on televangelism when someone stands there and says that I just see right now there's 300 of you that I know that God has touched to give $1,000. If you do it right now, your life will change in 24 hours. And some of us will go for it. And yet the local church where we serve, now mind you, that same person that we just gave that $1,000 to who promised us that our life would change in 24 hours, who don't even know who you are, they're just looking for your credit card number or the check, however you're going to send that money. That's all they really care about. That person is not going to be there when death comes in your family, when sickness comes in your family, when you lose your home, when you lose your job, and you need some food, you need somebody to help you pay your mortgage. None of them are going to be there. But the local church where you are a part, if that church asks you to give a sacrificial gift of $1,000, we're going to fall under the seat. Have they lost their mind? What do they think I'm going to get $1,000 from? But yet this false preacher who gets on the television tells you, in 24 hours, all your debt will be canceled, everything will go away. We'll buy into that. Here it is right here in the text. 2 Peter chapter 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. See, God will bring about deliverance for you. God can wipe the debt clean. God does have the power to do so. But God is going to work through your commitment to be obedient in sowing the seed. You got to read Mark chapter 4. You just can't expect to have fruit and you've never planted any seeds. That's a whole nother sermon. And in their greed, in their greed, they exploit you with false words. So I'm going to send you this handkerchief in the mail. It's been blessed and anointed. It's been prayed over. And no matter what your sickness is, you put this over your head and in the name of Jesus, your healing will be gone. Now, I'm not minimizing the power of what happens when we pray. Once again, because when you read the book of Acts, uh, Paul prayed over handkerchiefs and as a result was able to touch those with handkerchiefs and they were healed. But understand, 
God is so progressive in God's divine that God now knows that he's unveiled unto man the opportunity to understand the anatomy the way we do, that the prayer cloth is not the answer anymore because it doesn't require that in this context. Now, this is why I tell people, and I got to let y'all go. This is why I tell people, listen, don't you stop taking your medication because you believe by faith that you're going to be healed. There's a reason why that doctor prescribed that medication for you. Now, I know there's side effects, and I know there are issues you got to deal with, and I know it makes you feel uncomfortable. Hey, I take medicine. I don't like it. There's some side effects to it, but here's the reality. Here's the story. Everybody, everybody knows the gospel singer name, I think, I, I think I'm going to pronounce it right, Mandisa, 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 Mandisa. Listen, listen to her story. She believed that in God. Her friend came down with cancer when she was pregnant. Her friend said that she wasn't going to take chemo while she was pregnant. Mandisa prayed and believed, just believe it, knew it, claim it, named it, that God was going to heal her from the cancer. When she gave birth, one year later, she died. Now, you and I... I don't have the authority, nor do I have the professional medical insight to wrestle with. Would, have, would it have been safe for her to take chemo while pregnant? I don't know. But here's something I do know for sure. <clears throat> if something foreign invades your body and you need to have something else that can react to it to fight it, and if you don't take it, there's a good chance you may suffer death. So here's what I'm saying. When God bless the human mind to understand how to respond to the human problem with artificial, artificial, because outside of divine intervention, it's artificial, I call it artificial medication, but it's an artificial manner in which to approach it, follow the doctor's instructions. Because that might be God's healing for your body. Now, you can step back by faith if you wish and say, hey, I'm just going to trust God. And if it happens, it happens. If it don't, it that's, that's totally up to you. But since I ain't in no hurry, I, I want to go to heaven, but I'm not in any hurry to get there before my time. I'm going to follow the instructions. Listen to what he says, then I gotta let you go. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereof. And if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and if by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment in other words no matter how much evil you see don't trip out don't worry about it somehow in God's own time he gonna say that's it that's enough he gonna deal with it in the meantime he will deliver the righteous and we are forced to believe what the psalmist says. Never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. 
God will say, that's it. This is enough. But Jude is trying to tell us, we need to say, that's it. That's enough. To posture ourselves in the position where we will be blessed of God. Law of change. Law of change. Picture, if you will, a thousand mile scroll documenting all the facts about the topic of change. And change is always proportionate to knowledge. Don't ever forget that. Change is always proportionate to knowledge. Pain never, produ uh, pain never produces change. Pain produces the desire for change. Have you noticed that? Pain don't produce the change. It's the desire to make the change. Knowledge is the seed for change. For the purpose of knowledge is to create change. Time does not even create change. Hear me, hear me out now. Need does not produce change. Knowledge produces change. Hosea says the people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And he said the end result is death. Remember the seasons of your life will change Every time you decide to use your faith. That's what changed seasons. In other words, Jude is trying to tell us what you read in the past. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Paul, it's a reminder to us so that you don't have to repeat the same mistakes that the Israelites made. That's why grandmama and them tried to tell us stories try to give us insight and wisdom. And that's what they meant when they said a hard head. That's what they meant. When you fail to learn from the past, and that's what Jude is saying, these false teachers were bringing up and distorting the story and were reversing the direction of God's intention that we might learn from the past of Israel, putting us in another direction. And Jude says, don't let them do that to you. Stay in the book. Stay in the word. Let God's word be the lamp unto your feet, the light on your path, that it will lead you where you need to go. Jude argues that when we get away from the word, we are destined to be deceived by those who have a wrong motive in terms of trying to help us. Beware of the false teachers. They are out there. They are all over the place in the name of Jesus. Beware of not knowing the word of God. Well, let me just say this to you. The Christian only has one weapon. You don't have anything else. You only got one weapon. Now, out of that one weapon comes a multiplicit arsenal that can be used. But you ain't got but one weapon. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, the weapon is the word of God. The two-edged sword. Ephesians chapter 6 says that the weapon is the sword of the spirit. That's God's divine word. You can't win a battle against Satan without this sword. 
I don't care how much you pray, cry, snot, breathe, roll over in the floor, the whole nine yards. You ain't got no word in you. It doesn't mean anything. Churches roast and fall to pieces because they generally don't want to follow the word. 